Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. You can find this text on page 783 if you're using the Pew Bible. Page 783. Matthew 27. As we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew and as we come close to the end of the book now. And we come to the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, in recent weeks, we've considered how Jesus was put on trial. We've considered the evil of his trial as, as it revealed the true criminals. Even as Jesus himself was proven innocent, and even, even Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, could not give the order to put Jesus to death without washing his hands and saying, I am innocent of this man's blood in a futile attempt to try to relieve his own conscience of the guilt of what he was doing. And so an innocent man was handed over to the cruel mockery of the soldiers. Surely, if Jesus was the Son of God, surely if he was the Messiah, this would be a good time for him to call down those legions of angels. This would be a good time for him to rescue his people, to rescue Israel from the pagans, from the Romans. This is, and yet, moment by moment went by, insult by insult was hurled at Jesus. He suffered lash upon lash from the beating. His followers hid in fear or watched from a distance, confused and afraid, not knowing what was going on. But Jesus knew exactly what was going on. Let's read this morning, starting in verse 27 of Matthew 27. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the, ro of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which it means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. You may be seated. There is mystery when it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus, a mystery which has confused and confounded many, a mystery which has led many to deny the crucifixion or to deny the biblical identity of Jesus, a mystery which has caused many to stumble. For example, uh, in Islam, uh, in, in the Quran, it says very clearly that they crucified him not. They did not crucify Jesus. And so in Islam, there have been various theories about what happened there. And it, uh, one popular idea is that, well, somebody else was crucified in, in place of Jesus. You know, maybe it was Judas Iscariot that, that ended up on the cross, and he just appeared to be Jesus. They, they can't wrap their minds around why God would allow a holy man because even in Islam, they respect Jesus as a holy prophet, though they, they deny that he is God in the flesh. Nevertheless, they, they think he's a prophet, and they think he's holy, and they, why would God allow a holy man to be crucified in such a way, when it, you know, a, a great prophet like this, to, to die in such a shameful way? How could this be? Even in in the days of the early church, people stumbled over the idea of a crucified Messiah. Paul writes in his letter to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, 23, he notes that the preaching of Christ crucified, of a crucified Messiah, and that this is the Savior, a, a Jewish Messiah put to a shameful death on a Roman cross, and that all who believe on him will be saved. That this message was what, what he's called a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, 
to the Jews. You expect us to believe that our Messiah would be put to death on a Roman cross? For the Gentiles, you want us to believe in a, in a poor, crucified Jewish rabbi? You know, where's his, where's his great glory? Where's his great empire? We don't see his kingdom anywhere. This, how could this be the savior of the world? Now, Paul was making the point that the preaching of the cross, it looks like foolishness to many, but they do not understand the mystery of the cross. The reason is that, that they, they do not understand the mystery of the, of the cross, why it would be that the Son of God would suffer and die like this. And this is what we're going to be considering this morning. That though he died, he truly was the Son of God. He truly was the anointed one, the long-awaited king from the line of David. And Matthew is making this point very clearly in this text this morning. Because as we, as we read, notice how it begins. The soldiers are mocking the very idea that this guy would be a king. And, and as, as Jesus is crucified over and over again, we hear this claim mocked that, Oh, this is the Son of God. If he is the Son of God, you know, where's his power? Like, obviously, they're making fun of the idea that he's the Son of God. And, and that's how the people mocked him. That's how the Jewish leaders mocked him. And yet, by the end of the story, the Roman centurion says, truly, this was the Son of God. What changed his mind? What what changed Jesus' executioners into his worshipers? So that's our first question this morning as we consider this text. What happened as Jesus died that turned Jesus' executioners into worshipers? Let's examine his death through the eyes of these Roman executioners who happened to be garrisoned in Jerusalem for their most unforgettable assignment ever. We see in verse 27 that Jesus, freshly scourged, no doubt trailing blood from a hundred lacerations, is led into the governor's headquarters, perhaps for security purposes as he's awaiting his crucifixion. And in the meantime, as they're waiting for the time to come for Jesus to be led outside the city, the Roman soldiers decide to have a little fun. You can imagine, you know, word spreads through the ranks, hey, we've got uh, this, this condemned man, he's, he's claiming to be a king. You know, you can imagine one soldier running and, and opening the door. Hey, guys, come see the king of the Jews. So the Roman soldiers, they, they, get, they, they take Jesus' clothes off. They put on this scarlet robe, uh, which is probably the closest thing they could find to a purple robe, the color of royalty. They fashion a crown of thorns. And the king needs a crown, Right? They mash this crown of thorns upon his head. They find a, a reed and put it in his hand. And then the whole, the whole battalion, which was probably about several hundred men, maybe 600 men, bows down to pay homage to the king of the Jews. There Jesus is alone, bleeding, surrounded by several hundred battle-hardened strangers, bowing before him in mockery. Hail, King of the Jews. 
Then probably as, you know, taking turns, they go up to pay special homage to the king. They're, they give their personal tribute by spitting in his face, grabbing the reed scepter from his hand and smacking him on the head. They, they mocked the idea of his kingship. In their minds, it was a matter of laughter that this poor, bleeding man, this beggarly man, was a king. One pastor writes of the, the message the soldier's mockery was sending. It was as if to say, some king you are. Your kingliness is a joke. Look how easily we strip you of your dignity and authority. You know, us, mighty Rome. We beat you with your own scepter. Where is your power? Where is your royal army to defend you from your enemies? This was their attitude at the beginning of his execution, but not by the end. Believers, fellow Christians, when, when we are mocked for putting our hope, for putting all our hope in what people call pie in the sky, for not living for the moment, but rather living for eternity, for making sacrifices and investments with no visible earthly return, Remember how Jesus was mocked. Sometimes we ourselves can begin to doubt. We can begin to believe the mockery. We can begin to think, I'm, I'm suffering all this. I'm, I'm missing out on all that. And for what? Where's my reward? Remember how Jesus was mocked. This guy, this is no king, the soldiers thought. Where is his kingdom? Where is his kingdom? We don't see it, but we know how the story ends. And this man who looked so powerless to unbelieving eyes was, as Romans 1 says, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Well, soon the soldier's fun was interrupted it was time. It was time to take Jesus out to the place where they crucified criminals along the road into Jerusalem. There they would nail up the criminals to wooden beams, often with their charges listed. So and they, would, they would like to put them right alongside the road so that people coming into the city would, would see these human billboards to warn them, don't mess with Rome. Don't mess with Rome. Now at this point, a smaller group of soldiers, probably under 10 of them, would have been selected to escort Jesus to the place of crucifixion. And as they were led out, verse 32 records that they, they compelled a certain Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross for him. Evidently, Jesus was too weak from the beating and the sleepless night. And as as we come to the place of crucifixion, they would have uh, laid Jesus down, stretched him out on the cross, and driven iron spikes through his hands and feet, and then hung him up in place. And, and crucifixion, ordinarily, it could take a long time for people to die. That was part of the, the misery of crucifixion, is it, would, it was such a slow and painful death. Sometimes people would be hanging there for days before they finally died. But interestingly, as we, you know, as we read this, these verses, 
Matthew passes over the the gory details of Jesus' crucifixion. He just he kind of just mentions it in one sentence as he's passing. He says, and when they had crucified him, here's what they did next. They divided his clothing among them, casting lots. And that's that's not it's not to say that the the physical suffering of Jesus is unimportant to Matthew, but his, his point here is he's, he's emphasizing something else in this story. His point here is not simply to paint in our mind's eye a, a vivid picture of the sufferings of Christ. He's wanting to show us primarily, he's primarily focusing on the people around Jesus and what they're saying. That's, that's what he spends most of his ink on, what the people are saying, how they're mocking Jesus, what they're doing to Jesus, and how even in this, Scripture is being fulfilled in all of these little details. And, and, and Matthew, again, he's, he's showing us how these Roman soldiers, these pagan idol-worshiping people, that, you know, they, were, they would not have been Judeans, they would not have been Jews. Jews were ex- actually exempted from Roman military service. How these men, who knew very little, if nothing, about the prophecies and the Scriptures, as they watched this stranger die, nailed up between two criminals, they, they changed their tune. And they themselves could not help but admitting that truly this was the Son of God. That's Matthew's focus here. And so notice the uh, various scripture, scriptures that are fulfilled. You know, Joe had read for us Psalm 22 earlier. And I'm just going to give you a sampling of some of the texts, the many prophecies that were written by David centuries before and yet fulfilled in the crucifixion. David, you know, he lived before crucifixion was even invented. And yet he prophesied, uh, he said, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 35 of our text says, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Verse 38 of our text in Matthew says, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. The prophet Isaiah spoke of God's suffering servant in this way, saying that he was numbered with the transgressors. Psalm 22.7 says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. In other words, they're, they're walking by, like shaking their heads in, in scorn, like this guy. And that's fulfilled in Matthew 27.39. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Even in the words that come from the religious leaders, they, they speak in the words of, in the language of Psalm 22.8. The words that came from the mouth of Jesus' kingly ancestor, David. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. So Matthew is showing us the the connection that God and his almighty power ordained these details of Jesus' death 
These details draw a connection between Jesus and David. And Jesus, throughout Matthew, has been shown to be the son of David, the heir of David's throne, the Messiah, in other words, that long-awaited, long-promised heir from the line of David. Matthew is drawing that connection to those who are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus, even as he cries out from the cross, is an echo of Psalm 22's opening verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not only were the scriptures fulfilled as Jesus died, there were other signs and wonders as well. So the Roman executioners, they probably wouldn't have been familiar with the scriptures. But they saw other things that were going on. They saw the sky grow dark at noonday. And I don't think this was just like, uh, you know, oh, it got kind of cloudy. I don't think Matthew's wasting valuable parchment space just to comment on the weather conditions. Evidently, this was a strange, eerie, supernatural kind of darkness. In fact, there's even some evidence that it was widespread, that it, was, it wasn't just localized in Judea. Uh, some early Christian writers in uh, writing and debating with non-Christian, with pagan authors, they would use this as evidence. They would say, hey, look at your own historians. Even they uh, speak of this strange darkness that fell over the earth on this certain day. As the soldiers were sitting there watching Jesus die as he suffered, not only had the sky grown strangely dark, probably unsettling them a little bit. You know, to the pagan, this, this, and even to the Jew, this would kind of signal, hey, a divine being is angry. Something is not right in the universe. But then as Jesus cries out as he dies, he, he cries out with a loud voice, and then right after that, there's an earthquake. The ground beneath their feet begins to tremble and shake. This is, this is really weird, guys. The soldiers probably started looking at each other. Like, what just happened? This, we've, never, we've seen many crucifixions, but we've never seen someone die like this. And, and heaven and earth are testifying that this was no ordinary man. Even though these were pagan idol worshipers, they were probably ignorant of all the ancient prophecies being fulfilled, this darkness and this earthquake in connection with Jesus' death were enough to convince them, truly, this was the Son of God. In verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus, when they saw it, they were filled with awe. Notice the plural language there. It seems like the whole group, all those soldiers that were standing there, it wasn't just the centurion. Luke's account of this records the centurion's words as, as quote, praising God. There's, there's some evidence that this Roman soldier became a Christian and was even martyred for his faith in Christ. John Chrysostom, an ancient Christian pastor who lived just a few hundred years after Jesus' death, writes this. He says, Some say that there is also a martyrdom of this centurion 
who after these things grew to manhood in the faith. So he's saying that this guy, this Roman soldier became a Christian and then he was martyred for his faith. Jesus' executioners couldn't help but worship. And all this points to our second question. If, if even Jesus' executioners couldn't deny that this was the Son of God, what does this say about who Jesus is? And, and what does it say about why he was there? It's, the, the, the point is that the, the dying man on the cross really was the Son of God, but that doesn't really solve our whole mystery. Because if, if this is the Son of God, why is, what's he doing on a cross? Why is he suffering like this? Why is he suffering like this? And this is our second point this morning, our second question. Why, why does he cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If he, if he is who he claims to be in the Gospel of Matthew, none other than the great I am, the God of the Old Testament who created life in the beginning. Why does he give up his own life in this way? As verse 50 says, Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice yielded up his spirit. It's written as though Jesus surrendered his life. It's not like the life was taken from him, but he yielded up his spirit. You know, it was... Pilate was actually surprised that Jesus was already dead. Usually it took much longer for people to die. But Jesus yielded up his spirit. And this would match what John records Jesus as saying when he said in John 10, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. So the author of life is voluntarily giving up his life. Why? He could have called down legions of angels to free him. Why did he suffer his own life breath to leave his lungs, his own heartbeat to cease? And the scriptures are clear. It was only by his death that we could live. It was only by his death that we could live. This is the answer to our mystery. Throughout this book, Jesus has been very intentional. He's, he's come to do something, as Matthew shows us from the very first chapter, that he is being born and, and entering this world to save his people from their sin. Matthew 1.21. Jesus has repeatedly shown his disciples that his death would be necessary and, and yet that it would be followed by a resurrection on the third day. The death of the Son was integral. It was, it was essential to that saving work. Jesus had to die if he was to save his people from their sin. But why? Couldn't he have saved his people from their sin in some other way? Well, the scriptures are clear. Sin brings death. Death is the name of sin's curse. It is the judgment of a holy God against those who rebel against his kingship. Only here, the king himself came to suffer this judgment. In order for the Savior to save his people from their sin, and God also to remain a just judge, 
who doesn't just kind of sweep things under the rug and hide evil and and look the other way and pretend as if nothing happened. A God who is faithful to his word to punish evil. Then this was the way that his people had to be saved. In order to save them, Christ was made sin in the language of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21 shows us how he substituted for us. For our sake, it says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Another verse is Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, that death by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This was predicted by the prophets. Isaiah 53 says that he was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The Son of God himself suffered the punishment of God, the wrath of God against sin. This is is deep. How can this be? Isaiah 53 speaks of even God himself actively putting him to grief. Jesus' suffering on the cross wasn't merely because of the people around him. He was suffering the holy wrath of God against sin, which is why he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Charles Spurgeon noted that this, to be deserted of his God, was the climax of Christ's grief the quintessence of his sorrow. There are depths of of pain and woe here that none but the eternally damned in hell can even begin to fathom what Christ suffered on the cross. There is misery here that we'll never be able to calculate. But as Christ was forsaken on the cross as the punishment for sin, he assured that his people would never be forsaken. You know, Christian, sometimes we feel that the Lord is distant. Sometimes like David, we feel, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we feel that way. But Christ, it truly happened to him on the cross. He truly was forsaken so that we would have this promise from the book of Hebrews. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Christian, you who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, do you know how costly that promise is? I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you know what it costs for you to have that assurance? For you, when you go through your trials in life, you can look up and say, I know that the Lord has promised he will never leave me or forsake me. And when the doubt starts to creep in, remember Remember what it cost God to give you this promise. Remember Christ on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
a grief and a pain, an abandonment that we will never know if we trust in him. As Christ felt the pain of rejection on the cross, as he became sin for us, as he became that sin bearer, and he experienced the alienation that sin brings, the punishment that sin sin brings, as he endured that, something else happened. We read in our text of the, the veil of the temple, the curtain of the temple being torn from top to bottom. In other words, it wasn't like some, some guy ran up and started tearing it. He would have torn it from bottom to top. But this was, a, this was torn from heaven to earth. This was an act of God. It was a sign. And it, in the temple, the temple curtain closed off the most holy place where the presence of God traditionally dwelt in the Old Covenant, it, was, it closed this off from the people. It showed the people that you can't be in the presence of a holy God. There's a, there's a separation between sinners and the holy God, and you can't go in there or else you'll die. In fact, the only person that could go in that holy place where God dwelt was the high priest, and, and he, even he could only go in once a year, and it, only with the blood of a sacrifice. And he had to go through all of the, these elaborate cleansings so that he wouldn't be struck dead. They tied a rope to his ankle in case he was struck dead while he was in there because no one else would have gone in there to pull him out. The holy place. How can sinners in our guilt be in the presence of a God whose eyes are too pure to behold iniquity? How can we... How can we have hope to be to have fellowship and friendship and communion with God? Why is it that we can never be forsaken and not just not forsaken but be close to God and approach the throne of grace with boldness and as the scriptures say enter into his presence the very presence of his glory with joy and not be struck dead? It's because Christ died. He himself took our place. As the book of Hebrews says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Because of Christ's offering of his own death, We who believe all of our sin is washed away. God remembers our sin against us no more. And therefore, we have no bar of fellowship with God. No curtain to keep us away from his presence. We are brought. In fact, one of the promises of the New Testament is that God gives us his Holy Spirit. And now we don't have to stand outside the temple as we watch a priest go in there and do things behind a curtain. We become the temple of God. That's why there's no temple. There's no need for a temple, a a building here on earth for a temple because the church of God, the people of God, are his temple. We are a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. This This is how God assures us that what Christ accomplished has brought us near to God and will bring us to be in his presence for all of eternity, never to be cast out. We also see 
the, uh, in these dead people being raised from their graves. I mean, what is this about? Um, they, they came into Jerusalem, it seems, after Jesus was raised to the dead. They appeared to many. So this wasn't just like, you know, one man's wild tale as he walked past the funeral that day. They appeared to many people in the, in the city of Jerusalem, these people that had died. And all of this came about in the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. This, this, I believe, Matthew records as, as another sign, first of all, that this truly was the Son of God, but also pointing us to what his death accomplished. There's a picture here of salvation. As the Savior dies, those who trusted in God are brought to life. Through his death, we live. Christ took the sting of death. He broke the power of the grave over those who believe. And those who believe on him, we are raised up to eternal life. We're not raised like the unbelievers will be to go to what is called the second death and suffer eternally there. But we are raised to endless life. Death for the believer has no sting. In fact, death now is, is spoken of as falling asleep. It's like a, a short rest before we wake to the dawn of eternity. As they said in verse 42, mocking him, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He could have saved himself, but because of the great love of God and his willingness to show mercy to sinners, he would not. This man on the cross, this dying man who looked so weak, he had the power to save himself, but he had the love to stay there so that others would be saved. He was standing in their place. The strength of his love, the strength of his resolve to save others is shown in the fact that he remained there, fastened to that, those wooden beams by those three iron spikes. Those, that didn't expose his weakness, but his strength. And so there we have it. This is the solution to the mystery of the cross. Why, if he was the son of God, he suffered as he did? Yes, the, the dying man on the cross really was the son of God, and he died so that we would live, so that we would have access to God, so that we would never be forsaken. What about you this morning? Do you see this morning that your sin is this great, that it would require such a death in order for you to have salvation? That nothing but the sacrifice of God himself in the flesh on the cross could ever deliver you from God's wrath? That apart from this way that, that Christ has opened up for all who believe, that we ourselves will be forsaken by God and cast into the outer darkness forever. You know, if, if this is what, if there were some other way for us to enter heaven, surely God would have, would have not gone to all this trouble. This shows us that there is no other way. But as Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That may not be a very inclusionist statement, 
It's very exclusivist. Jesus is saying, all other religions are dead ends. I am not a way, but the way. The way. No one comes to the Father except through me. And yet, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you come to Christ, he promises to save you. In that way, in that way it's very inclusionary. You, whoever you are, no matter what you've done, you may come to Christ, but I can promise you this. If you truly come to him, you cannot walk away the same. If you truly come to him, you will be forever changed. Whoever believes on him is not condemned, Jesus said, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Are you believing this morning? Are you trusting in this man who died on the cross, this God-man, God in the flesh? If you have any questions about that, I urge you, come talk to me after the service. You can know that you have eternal life because Christ came and because he died and because he rose. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for giving us this account that we read of, of even your executioners admitting that you are the Son of God. Lord, as we, as we see this, this evidence for your great power, even in your death, the fulfillment of age-old prophecies, the shaking of the earth, the darkening of the skies, the raising of the dead, Lord, strengthen our faith. Help us to see that the earth will again be shaken, the sky will again be darkened, and the dead will again be raised in the final resurrection. And this Christ will come back to judge the world in righteousness on the day that has been appointed. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room is ready for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.